um, the Word of God. So, this morning, we are going to be go- going to 1 John chapter 1, which extends into verse 2 of chapter 2. So, if you're all ready, here we go. This morning, we are beginning a new study in the Word of God, the, first, the epistle of 1 John. I'm going to take you on a journey into some deep theology today. These words are not original with me, but they are of great theologians provided by God for our understanding of his word. So here we go. The Apostle John is sometimes thought of as gentle, quiet, almost dove-like, when in fact he was a bold man. He had a message that is authoritative, direct, and dogmatic. He is a man of black and white, absolutes. Today we live in a world of gray. It's a time lacking in conviction, but very high on tolerance and compromise. John writes in simple, clear words that, and he's, that speak an absolute truth. He, but he writes also from his heart. He was a pastor in Ephesus where he had leadership. There he fought Gnosticism which denies Christ's humanity, and it claims that it has a knowledge that is above Scripture. But the biblical view of Jesus affirms his complete humanity and as well as his full deity. John's overall theme is to bring believers back to the fundamentals of the truth, the very basics of Christianity. John doesn't identify himself as the author, But he was the last standing apostle, and the people of that time knew him. They knew him personally. The ambitious, driven apostle of the past was now a humble man who shared his intimate relationship with Christ. This bold apostle of clear-cut black and white is known in history as an apostle of love. The world teaches that if you hold on to uncompromising truth, you are unloving. Well, John dismisses that. He writes this letter to tell us that we can hold on to absolute truth and still be loving. He writes to believers about a deeper understanding of the faith and gives them great confidence in that which they already possess. God gave us the Holy Spirit who inspired the apostles to teach and write down truth. This same truth is now being assaulted. John writes to help us see this divine truth and to discern error. He writes in absolutes. There is no ambiguity here. Yet John is warm. He's speaking like a father to his children. He writes in a repetitive style to help us to understand a strong message and the great truths that he heard repeated by Jesus over three years. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard We now proclaim to you also that you too may have fellowship with us 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. John's gospel contains signs, but his epistle contains tests. In verse 1, John writes about the word, like in his gospel. But there he writes to bring unbelievers to faith. Here he writes to bring, he writes to believers to deepen their faith and confidence in Christ. This is an epistle of certainty. We know is repeated 36 times. We know here, we know there is theological certainty, moral certainty of the law, and relational certainty of love. These are revealed in history, witnessed by the apostles, and confirmed by the Holy Spirit in the believer. These certainties are categories by which we can measure a person as a Christian. The first certainty is nothing is new. Starts out with what was from the beginning. It has not changed from the beginning. The same message the same gospel. This gospel, the word of life, was experienced by John himself. It's permanent, it's timeless, it's eternal. Hebrews 13, 8 and 9. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. John directs teaching at his teaching at heresy since heresy always finds something new. But the truth, it's unchanging, and it's verifiable. In verse 1, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. First, it was heard. Jesus spoke. John was there. Not once, but he was there for three years. Second, it was seen by John, but not only John, it was seen by multitudes of others. What he beheld was not some mystical event. It was powerful. It was the miracles, the power over nature. It was the forgiveness of sin. He saw these things, but he also saw the meaning behind them, that God was made flesh. Thirdly, it was touchable. Notice John does not say, I saw, I touched, but writes, we saw, we heard, we touched. Jesus was a man, a man that John lived with for three years. But Jesus was also the word of life. Verse 2. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This is John's conclusion after all he had seen, all he had heard, and all he had touched. You see, rarely did God come to earth, but now eternal life was manifested in flesh, as it is written. God was now visible. John talks about his responsibility to bear witness and proclaim to you that this life it is Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. Why? Verse 3. What we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Here is another certainty, the certainty of fellowship with John and with other believers, but even more so with the Father and his Son. His fellowship is a real connection, a linkage. It's a together in common life, an intimate partnership, a sharing of life, eternal life. 1 Corinthians 6.17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is the one spirit with him. A partnership so intimate that John MacArthur writes, quote, this is the amazing reality of the Christian gospel, that God comes down in human flesh. God becomes a man that we might partake of the very life of God, unquote. What kind of life? A spiritual life. The word of life. Verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. We have certainty of joy. Joy in the word of life. Joy is seen in full satisfaction and total commitment that can never be lost. Paul repeatedly tells us to rejoice. Again, he says rejoice. John now transitions to another certainty, the certainty of sin or confession of sin, a certain evidence of salvation. Verses 5 to 2, verse 1. John starts by presenting Jesus as the source of light in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Here John is expounding on the nature of God, who he is. It is important to understand who God is, not just what he does. You see, God is light, not a light. This is essential to understanding the rest of the epistle. Now, in the Old Testament, God appeared as light to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 33. God also led the Israel in the desert in a cloud of light and a pillar of fire. In the New Testament at the Transfiguration, Jesus manifested himself, himself as light. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16, Paul says about Jesus, He who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. God is described as covering himself as in light as a cloak. So what does this all mean to us? God is light. Christ, because he is God, is light. So we become become light through Christ. It is through him that every light of God is conveyed to us in the gospel. In Matthew 5:14, we are described as the light of the world. Now stay with me here. Here we go. 
Psalm 36.9 equates life with light. You see, they're linked. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. John 1, verses 3 to 4. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The creator is the source of light. Light equals life. There is no other source. He gave us physical life in creation and spiritual life in our new creation or second birth. That life is eternal life. Now let's read John 1, uh, 1 John verse 5 again. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. There is no darkness, no darkness at all. There is no death, either spiritual, there is no eternal death. Okay, stay with me here again. Since God is life and light, and there is no darkness or death in him, Christ is life and light, and there is no darkness or death in him, since we have been given life through Christ, we then have no darkness and, like Christ, will live forever in eternal life. Hope I haven't lost you there, because that's a wow. Now, who has this life? Verse 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice truth. It is not just if we say we have it, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Many claim that they are Christian, but sadly they are not really saved. Our walk becomes the test of whether or not we have true light in us or not. For the, for the rest of the epistle, John sets up a series of contrasts to help us to discern if we are in that light. The first test to see if you are in the light and to have received eternal life is your attitude towards sin. If you are a possessor of light and eternal life, you should see a devotion to truth and a commitment to holiness. If it is not there, you're lying to yourself and to others. Now we all fall short of the glory of God, as seen in Romans 3.23. Since this is true, we need a test of genuineness, and that would be one's perspective of sin. Regenerated people confess their sin, but ungenerated people conceal their sin. If you can't understand grace, if you... You can't understand grace if you don't understand the law. To be set free, you must understand condemnation first. Verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the Bible is full of confession of sin. It's in Exodus 10:16, 1 Samuel 15:24, Psalm 32:5, and the entire Psalm 51. Now, these are wholesome, they're healthy, accurate, and honest acknowledgement of one's true condition. Romans 2 says our conscience knows God's law, but it rebels and fights against it. If you live as though sin does not exist in your life, you're not likely to believe that judgment, uh, you're not likely to believe that judgment doesn't either. In the book of Malachi, God had forgiven specific, had given us specific rules about sacrifices and that which was to be brought for that sacrifice. When those people at that time disobeyed, God said, but cursed is the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king and the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Sin is serious, and what is even worse, when they, when they heard this, they cried out, where is justice? When they looked at the same sin as, as seen in others that they had already committed. Today, people think God is unjust, he's unfair, and he's unloving because they refuse to acknowledge their sin. Today, man is not defined as a sinner. We're told that he's sick. He's in need of therapy, he's in need of drugs. When in reality, he is a sinner in need of forgiveness. What's wrong with your life can only be treated when you see it from the inside and not the outside. The problem is sin. See the problem as God sees it. John goes so far as to say that anyone who denies their sin and refuses to confess it can't be Christian. Sin has consequences. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. A true understanding of the nature of God is a starting point to seeing your standing as a sinner. And this is where you start to determine whether or not a claim of salvation is true. Confession of sin is a certain proof of, your, of salvation. There is actually a book on sale, if you can believe this, that never even mentions repentance. But it is sold as a book on Christianity. Repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit done in the heart that leads to salvation. Here is John's test, verse 6. If we say, verse 8, if we say, verse 10, if we say, now, if you say you are a Christian, then you must show you are. If you need to see that eternal life manifested, you need to see that eternal life manifested in the love of truth and the love of holiness. Again, sin has consequences. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if we are not confessing our sins and practicing what is in the light of truth, you are not what you say you are. Let's go back to verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, 
and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walk, the walk here is used as the talk, as it talks of daily conduct. If our walk manifests evidence of this new life in us, then we are truly having fellowship with God and each other in Christ. We are also being cleansed by Christ as true believers. It is a walk that manifests a love of truth and of holiness. As long as we are in the flesh, we will continue to sin. But when, when we sin and confess our sins, the blood of Christ cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Jesus paid the penalty in full. Important fact. When you come to Christ as salvation, you are washed and declared righteous before God by the imputed righteousness of Jesus himself. You didn't have it. He gave it to you because he paid for it himself. No longer are you guilty, defiled, and unclean. Ephesians 1, 7 tells us uh, he has forgiven all your sins. It's like taking a bath. When your hands get dirty, you only need to wash your hands to get clean again. Your sins have been forgiven, and you just need to get in the right relationship with Christ again. Because you see that relationship is important because God cannot tolerate sin. A great picture of the continual washing of Christ, he provides for those who are his. Now verse 9 is not easy to understand since it does sound conditional. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. John says this to re reiterate that God is faithful to do exactly what he said he would do, to keep on forgiving and cleansing us in, a, in our ongoing sanctification. Confession is acknowledging reality, affirming the truth as God sees it. Important fact here. The act of contrition is, does not earn us anything. Forgiveness isn't a reward. Our sin was paid for on the cross. Forgiveness is not because of confession. Confession is because of the forgiveness we already have as a believer. The Spirit works in your heart to bring you to that repentance. And because God hates sin and you confessed that sin, you are forgiven. So we are to acknowledge what God hates, sin. This takes us right into chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John is speaking to us as a loving pastor. Since we are going to sin... Don't treat it lightly, but remember there is an advocate to help us, Jesus the righteous. John has set up a courtroom, courtroom scene with Jesus as our defense attorney. We usually think of forgiveness as a matter of grace, but here we also see it as a matter of justice. 
God can't disregard his own perfect holy law. Even as believers, we are not able to keep the law perfectly. Here is where verse 1 is huge. This epistle was not written to leave you in fear. It is to set the standard and call us to that standard of holiness and righteousness and love. It is to leave you joyful in what God has already promised, relief. It's seen in verse 1, part B. We have an advocate. John addresses us as little children. Here, where fear is overtaken by joy, we have an advocate who is the very Son of God. So if we sin, and we will, there is hope. A defense attorney to plead our case. The father, the judge, has responsibility to uphold the perfection of the law. He is to render perfect justice. Here we see salvation for what it really is. Salvation is not, an act of, is not only an act of grace, but it's also justice. Justice was not set aside, but was satisfied. Jesus paid it all. Verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. You see, you get both mercy and justice. Praise God we don't get what we deserve, but there is justice. Scripture assures us that every sin will be punished. Mercy does not weaken justice, for the wages of sin is death. Now, we are all guilty in this courtroom. We know it. The advocate knows it, and the judge certainly knows it. Now, there is a prosecutor who accuses us before God who is not mentioned here. Satan is that prosecutor who stands before the judge, the judge who is perfectly holy, absolutely perfect. He actually is the writer, interpreter, and applier of the law. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. We need to be saved from his holy justice. God was the writer of the law and the upholder of the law, but he is also the provider of our advocate, the only one who could defend us, his son. So now we see the judge as merciful, our defender is more powerful than Satan, but he only defends those who confess their sins and admit they're guilty. Now, what other defender or, you know, defender of the uh, defense that would defend you would only defend you if you were guilty? Think about that. Who defends only guilty people? Look back to verse 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Critical verse in scripture. Jesus is not only our defense attorney, but he is also our substitute, providing complete satisfaction for the justice required as seen in Isaiah 53. So, first the bad news. Every person who has ever lived has rebelled against God. Now the good news of the gospel God, being holy and just, but also merciful and loving, offers complete forgiveness for all violations against his holy law and all the punishment 
it incurs. To whom is it given? To all who have saving faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. Only those who repent of their sins have faith in his Son's death as a full payment of those sins and and submit to him as Lord of their lives can be delivered from uh, eternal damnation and given the promise of eternal life. How God satisfies his justice and his grace is the great plan of redemption. Chapter 2, verse 1 says that if anyone sins, we have an advocate in this courtroom, Jesus Christ. How can you defend the guilty? By propitiation, by Jesus himself. The Greek word actually means to appease or to satisfy. In court, it means you have to satisfy the law, pay the full debt. But in scripture, it means you need a a sacrifice of atonement. In the Old Testament, there was only one day a year that this could be done, and it would only be done by the high priest. He sprinkled the blood of sacrifice on the ark, which contained the law that was broken by sin. Above the ark was the Shekinah glory of God. Now between the law and the glory of God, there was a mercy seat on which the blood of sacrifice was poured. You see, it covered that broken law. It was to make atonement for sin. Now, the animal blood did not appease God, but it symbolized a sacrifice that would would satisfy God. Now, this old sacrifice was done over and over and over again, and the debt was never paid, not for a single sin. But it only pointed to the one sacrifice that would. So God's wrath could be satisfied. Now this isn't a popular topic today in today's world. God is a God whose anger needs to be appeased by sacrifice. Punishment and pardon need to come together. There is a sacrifice that, sa- that satisfied God and paid the penalty of sin. John three thirty six. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see your sins need to be satisfied or paid for by you or by somebody else. Well, then who? 1 John 2 gives us the answer. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Here we read that Jesus is that someone else, that perfect, sinless someone else, the perfect sacrifice, the only one possible. He isn't a propitiation. He is the propitiation, Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being was fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Here is the principle of substitution. God determined that Christ's death was the perfect satisfaction of divine justice. Death of the sinless to pay for sins of the believer. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins 
once for all, the just and the unjust, so that he uh, might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus' death paid the price to God, an actual payment for sin, a full payment of sin, Romans 3, 23 and 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being satisfied as a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. It is upon Christ that God casts his entire wrath for sinners who would become believers. The motive for this is his amazing, amazing love. Now, verse 2 says, it is, not, it is not for our sins only, but for the whole world. John was a minister to the Jews, and the Jews understood about sacrifice in the mercy seat but they believed it applied to only them. It was unique to them. But John says Jesus is a sacrifice not only for the Jews, but for the Gentile world too. What an amazing thing for us. Jesus paid the price for all who call upon God in both Israel and the entire world. Now I've given you a lot to think about. Do you find yourself passing John's test? Does your walk match up to the truth of Scripture? Or do you find yourself in the need of a Savior who is holy and just, yet merciful and very, very loving? Search your heart for the answer, because your place in eternity depends on it. So let us pray. We have come to you, Father, in thanksgiving for all you have provided for us in your word. And we humbly approach your throne of mercy and grace and ask what, that what we have learned today have impact on our hearts and may it provide, for, provide us with comfort and assurance in your promises. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.